Well, look here, it's another edition of Making Money with the financial coach, Ron Hebert, a retired portfolio manager, was in the industry for better part of four decades. My name is Gord Whitehead. I'm a retired broadcaster, also in my chosen industry for four decades. We're going to talk about investing in a new world order, Ron. And, uh, you know, if you pay any attention to history, if you pay any attention to current events, you have to understand there's a big change going on right now. And I think specifically when I think of Asia. You know, investors really need to get their heads around these changes because things are going to be changing dramatically in a number of areas. We're going to be talking about six of them today. The first one is the entry of uh, the Asian century. And this area of the world boasts the biggest economy. And in some areas like 5G and telecommunications has a technological lead over the West. And I was listening to the premier, Premier Xi, in China, and their goal by 2035 is that they're not going to be following technology anymore. They're not going to be copying. They're going to be setting technology standards and not following them. And so you just look at the dynamism over there, and they're growing at two or three times the rate that we are. And so as an investor, you have to have some exposure to this area of the world because that's where the growth is coming from. Think of companies like Samsung, right? I mean, you know, if you're an Apple aficionado, that's fine. Samsung's sort of on the other side of the fence. And the, and the amount of equipment that they generate, washers and dryers and televisions and phones and tablets, and, holy smokes. <laughs> yeah. So and that's one example. Yeah, you want to get economic exposure to this area through direct ownership of stocks. You know, like Samsung's a good example of just an Asian powerhouse. You know, you can sit here and just name them off. Alibaba, Honda, Toyota. Nissan. Uh, yeah. They, yeah. yeah. And the, the list goes on of companies that are just uh, technology and manufacturing dynamos. So you need exposure. And so something, and this is just an example, uh, there's, there's so many, but I just wanted to give an example of something to look at would be the Asian exchange traded fund that iShare has. It's called the All Country Asia X Japan ETF, and that is AAXJ, and that trades on the NASDAQ exchange. So there's dozens of them that you can get. Your, ba your bank that you deal with probably has an Asian fund or Asian ETF to look at. But you want to get exposure to that region of the world because if you look at the three power blocks, you look at where the economic growth has come from, you have North America, you have Europe, and you have Asia. And Europe has been dead for a decade. And North America is going to be fumbling around. They've taken on so much debt. And so one of the few areas of the, the world that offers pure growth is Asia. So you want to get some exposure there. Okay, let's talk about the, the, the thought of a tripolar world. If you look at China, Russia, and the United States. Those are the big three military powers, if you will, right? Yes. And, you know, after World War II, the U.S. emerged as the world's sole superpower. You know, it had the fin financial strength, it had the military strength, it had the political strength to pretty much get its way economically around the world. But today, that is disappearing. I mean, you look at little countries like Iran and Syria and Korea, and they can ignore U.S. threats. They basically stick their tongue out at the U.S. when the U.S. says something because they've got backing from Russia. They've got backing from China. 
And so you're, you're seeing China through its Belt and Road Initiative is deepening economic ties in Asia and Africa, which the United States seems to have forgotten all about, even South America. And Russia is the countries that sort of are the peripheral to it, especially in the Middle East, some of the stands. Russia has been very, very active supporting countries with anti-U.S. policies along its borders. And so when you have one big power and you have other powers rising up to challenge it, you get political destabilization. Now, it doesn't mean that China and the United States or China and Russia are going to have a war. But you remember back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, there was lots of proxy wars. There was Cambodia, there was Vietnam, there was uh, Angola and Africa, where all this fighting took place. So there was lots of proxy wars or regional wars, as they call them, and right now, these wars are being fought in Afghanistan, they're being fought in the Middle East, they're being fought in North Africa. And so you want some exposure to defense stocks or a defense ETF. And a good example here would be the iShare U.S. Aerospace and Defense ETF, because this doesn't go away. And this strife, usually you find it in not central. You don't have the U.S. standing up to China or vice versa, but you have fights in these proxy wars, and they go through a lot of uh, defense. They go through guns and bullets and planes and rockets and, and cannons and all these things. So if we have more of this, the demand goes up because it's expendable. You shoot a bullet once, and you don't recycle the thing. You've got to get another bullet or a bomb or a plane gets shot down or whatever. So uh, this is an area where, as you see, the a tripolar world develop, historically defense stocks do very well in an environment like that. Somebody told me recently, and I don't know if it's necessarily true, okay. but I wouldn't be surprised that China now has the world's largest navy. And that I, that may be. I know they've been building aircraft carriers and destroyers and all kinds of naval vessels at a furious rate over the last decade or so. Is there an Asian defense ETF you can look at, I wonder? Um, if there is, I haven't found it yet, and uh, certainly China has the biggest navy in the region. Their navy yeah. dwarfs anything else around them. I don't um, know if it's bigger than the U.S. Navy yet, but, I mean, that may well be. I'm not sure. I don't keep track of such things. Yeah, well, I went to Jane's and looked at it, which is the definitive... Um, defense book. Yeah. yeah, defense book. And the United States, I think, spends as much as the next three biggest defense contractors together. So they're still numero uno by a considerable way. But China is going to have its first aircraft carriers coming on stream, and they're building a lot more. They're building submarines. They're, they're doing satellites. Uh, they're, they're building drones. They've, got, they've come a long way in aeronautics. I mean, they're talking about putting a man on the moon here in the next couple of years. You know, so China's come a long way with their technology. And, of course, that also... Uh, that technology isn't just used for peaceful means. It's also used to develop weaponry. In conflict, yeah, all right. Let's talk about debt exhaustion. Boy, is there a lot of that out there right now. You know, what has increasingly the, driven the global economy is consumerism. And remember, <clears throat> after you had 9-11, I uh, remember George Bush standing up and, and TV and saying, go out and spend money, get the economy going, because everybody was at home. They were scared that there was going to be more terrorist attacks. And so the government is actually pushing people to uh, not defer gratification and take on more and more debt. 
And when debt wasn't as large as it is today, a dollar worth of additional debt uh, would create about two or three dollars of growth in the economy. In most places today, a dollar worth of debt actually causes negative growth because we've got so much debt, you've got to pay it back. So governments, corporations, and individuals are reaching the limits of how much debt they can take on because the pile has grown so big that they no longer are, are, are they're getting to the point where it's going to be very, very tough to service um, all, all this debt that they have uh, added on. So if rates move even a little bit higher, global stability could be at risk. So the strategy here would be to buy things like precious metals because uh, gold, you know, and you can do that through options or coins or bullion or stocks or ETFs or even mutual funds. And that will give you some exposure to an asset that does well if you have inflation, which typically happens uh, once you reach debt exhaustion. Okay, so we're talking about investing in a new world order. And boy, there has not been that I can think of a better example of what can happen because of globalization than what we saw and are continuing to see during this pandemic, the lack of personal protective equipment. I've seen so many specials on this on television, and the one common theme is always it's, it's the supply chain. It's the supply chain. It's the supply chain. So now a lot of that stuff's coming home again, right? Medical supplies, medicines. People are even looking at their cell phones, and they're saying, look at all the rare earth metals we need to um, have a modern electronic economy. And most of those rare earths come from China, critical high-tech hardware, uh, defense components, a lot of the the critical must-have stuff is going to be brought home. And, of course, we're also getting a push from the unions who want to bring uh, manufacturing and uh, the jobs that come with it uh, back home here. And like you say, I think the aha moment was the fact where China, which manufactures, and Asia, which manufacture a lot of the, the PPE, you know, and they were rightfully so. They were taking the PPE, and they were first using it. For themselves. For themselves, and they had every right to do that. But all of a sudden, it began dawning on everybody that for a lot of these things, do we really want to depend on someone else? Uh, we've got to have, if there's emergency, that we can take care of our own people as well. So deglobalization is is essentially happening and the strategy is start adding exposure to companies that do all their business domestically or produce non-critical products like grocery stores you know uh canadian grocery stores canadian telcos canadian utilities they have all their business at home or some of the utility stocks actually have some exposure to the u.s but essentially it's a north american or a domestic business and those don't have the pressures because you're seeing with the Trump administration the the, uh, the tariffs the, and all the rest of it, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, tariffs and taxes and putting up barriers. Uh, the Chinese all of a sudden uh, announcing uh, the other day that they were uh, going to inspect uh, Australian lobster. And, of course, the Australian lobster ended up sitting on the docks for two or three days and it spoiled. Well, you know, if all of a sudden they don't like you, you can't you can't export into those markets. So, you know, globalism, as countries take a closer look at developing things in-house for their own consumption, and certainly China's leading the way. They want to have most high-tech actually produced in their own country. They want to export it, but they don't want to import it. And all of a sudden it's dawning on 
other countries that, hey, China is going to be a one-way street. They want to export stuff to us, but they don't want to buy our stuff. So it's going to be important that we develop it at home, develop our own markets, and, and keep our profits within our country. There's going to be a big move in this over the next five to ten years. And I think also, Ron, we're, uh, we're seeing more and more now a, a generational shift in, in goals and values. And, and leaders are going to come from the millennials and, and Generation Z, right? Or Z, if you wish. Yeah. And I'm sure you notice it, Gord, with your own kids because you've got, uh, you've got some millennials in, in there. Yeah, yeah. And they, they look at things a little differently than Dad does. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the same with mine. I've got four kids that are, that are I've got four millennials. And they firmly believe, or they, they, they lean towards social, environmental, and government stand, governance standards. And that's more important to them than the capitalist mantra of focusing on profits and letting the consequences fall where they may. And so, you know, that is why you've got so many companies that have absolutely no profits, but these stocks are going straight up. Why? Because it resonates with the kids. The kids are saying, yeah, this is the kind of company I want to own. Fundamentals be be damned. I want to own a company that's doing this for the world. And so, you know, buying an ATF or mutual fund that uses ESG criteria to make its portfolio selections, you know, and I had an example, the RBC Vision Fossil Fuel Free Global Equity Fund um, as, as as an example of a mutual fund that, uh, that RBC has. And as kids get older, they get more money, they get in positions of power, they're going to be putting their beliefs in these areas, uh, they're going to be legislating it, they're going to be using the capital they have to support it, and so the world we live in is dramatically changing, and so as these kids get more and more say as to what's happening, and the generation is changing, you look at the U.S., well, They've got a 78-year-old man who looks like he's going to be president. And after that, there's the, 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 the gap of new leaders seems to drop by about 20 or 30 years. So, you know, we're definitely seeing changes. And as the kids get into positions of power, these are the kind of things that they're going to favor. And tied to that, Ron, is, is this thought about upward mobility is, is going to be a thing of the past in Western countries. I mean, I'm, I can remember hearing... I don't know, 25 years ago, that our children were not going to be as well off as we were or are. You know, our kids are going to be the first generation that will be less economically well off than their parents. And, you know, we're going back and we're talking six generations, seven generations now, of upwardly mobile kids that did much better than their parents, and their parents were delighted to see that happen. So as we move into a slower growth economy, you need to plan for that, plan that your portfolio returns could be lower, adjust your financial and retirement plans, and budget accordingly. Well, a lot going on, Ron. A lot of transition, as you say, and there have to be some strategies in place for you to uh, navigate those waters, and hopefully the advice we gave you in this episode of Making Money will help you to do that. Remember, if you have a question, we have, we're happy to answer questions, right, Ron? We are. And all you have to do is get them to us. Letsmakemoney.ca is our website. Or our friends at cfcw.com, where the show airs uh, on their website. And Ron's Money Minutes are heard twice daily, Mondays through Fridays on CFCW. Uh, we can also get our questions uh, from you through those particular means. 
So do send them along to us or show a suggestion if there's something. And I don't know what it would be that we haven't touched on, but there's a world of stuff out there to talk about, Ron, when it comes to investing. And we'll be back next week to do just that. We hope we'll join you. you'll join us then. On behalf of the financial coach, Ron Hebert, I'm Gord Whitehead. Thanks for being with us.